Let's pray together. Would you say to the Lord that he is still your living hope, that you need his hope, his help, his strength above anything else in all the world? Would you tell the Lord that? And now would you ask him to show you how you can experience that hope in your life, wherever you need his hope today. Ask him to show you that from his word right now. Father, I join my sisters and brothers. We rejoice in the fact that Jesus is our living hope, our only living hope. And we pray that today you'll show us how we can claim that hope, experience that hope, share that hope. Be transformed and encouraged by that hope where we need that hope the most. I pray that for my heart and for ours. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, hard day yesterday, huh? I don't know about you, of course. Janet and I were talking. It was hard for us to watch, even the memorials, you know. Uh, watch some of them, some I just couldn't. Um, I guess doing the numbers, they say if you're around five, on 9-11, you'll have a memory of that. So I guess if you're 25 or so today, then you'll have some living memory, some personal memory of what it was like on that day, on that day. Uh, obviously a day that changed the world in so many ways. But you know, it's interesting, as horrible as 9-11 was, uh, there's been a lot of conversation about this. Janet pointed this out to me, an article that was written. Someone wrote, you know, as much as I hate 9-11, I miss 9-12. Remember that? All the flags, the patriotism, the unity, the community, all of that on 9-12. Uh, Janet and I were serving Park City's Baptist Church in Dallas at that time. That's the sanctuary from the outside of it. My office, you went through the door and to the right, and it's right there on the right over there behind those trees. The day, two days after 9-11, on 9-13, our church hosted a community-wide worship service. That's what the inside of the sanctuary of the church looks like from the corner back there. Seats 2,200 people, and it was packed. Uh, my good friend, Monsignor Zimmerman at Christ the King Catholic Church was one of our speakers. Skip Ryan at Park City's Prez. Uh, a variety of pastors. Uh, Mark Craig at Highland Park Methodist. variety of pastors from all over the community came together. It was more a prayer service and a worship service than anything. And I don't think in my whole life in ministry I've ever seen anything like it. The way it was just packed. I mean, 2,200 people, standing room only, two days after 9-11. As we came together... Because we recognized in those days we were fighting an enemy we didn't even know at those days. We didn't know two days after really who Osama bin Laden was. We didn't really know most of us what Al-Qaeda was. We didn't really know what this was. We just knew that we were fighting an enemy greater than ourselves, it seemed, at this moment in time, than our own resources. And we knew we needed God. We knew we needed God. Well, if we're going to get back to that, if this 9-12 could be like that 9-12, if tomorrow could be like that 9-13, if our country were ever to get back to that, it will be when we make those same two decisions. When we realize we're fighting an enemy bigger than ourselves, and we need what only God can do. And so that's what we're here to talk about. We've been all summer long, as you know, in a series about the difficult questions that we face, and each one using them to turn to Jesus with greater intensity. So a couple of weeks ago, we started talking about Satan, who he is and what he does. One of the questions people always ask about Satan is, where did he come from? 
Why does God let there be a devil? And what's inside that for us? So we could spend weeks in theological speculation, but we're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to look at this from a very practical, personal perspective, finding lessons in this that will teach us. Number one, we have an enemy greater than ourselves. But number two, we have a Lord who's greater than our enemy. That's your takeaway. You have an enemy greater than yourself, but you have a Lord greater than your enemy. That's the takeaway. And we're going to learn how to drive that into our lives where we need it most. So let's first of all get out of the way what a lot of people think they know about Satan that's not really so. You remember Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, who said it's the unknown unknowns that are your problem. It's the things you don't know that you don't know. But the even greater problem is the things you think you know that aren't so. The things you think you know, but turns out they're not really true. There's a lot of speculation about Satan that's just not really true. For instance, in Isaiah 14, talking about the origin of Satan, here's a passage people turn to immediately in this conversation. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star? That gets translated into Latin as Lucifer. That's where the name Lucifer comes from. The Latin Vulgate's version of Isaiah 14, verse 12. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. And so from that, we get this idea that Satan um, led a rebellion against God back at the very beginning of time. Now, there's a different rebellion in Revelation 12, but that's apparently at the end of time. But this is at the very beginning of time, and he wanted to be God. He tried to be his own God, and he led a revolt against God. And because of this passage, we know that that's his revolt and his prideful rebellion, and that's the origin of what we know of as Satan, except... If you keep reading, the text says, no one keeps reading. They stop right there. If you keep reading, those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let the prisoners go home? All the kings of the nation lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. This is actually about the king of Babylon, Isaiah 14. Now, you can say it also relates to Satan if you want to. Some theologians will do that. But its original context, it's about an earthly king. In other words, we don't really know as much about Satan's origin as we thought we did. Another example, Ezekiel 20. Oh, and that's John Milton. That's who you can blame for all that or thank for all that. We know a lot more about Satan's origins from Paradise Lost John Milton, based on Isaiah 14, than we really do from the Bible. Another text you hear a lot is in Ezekiel 28. Again, people say, this is Satan. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, and it goes on to describe that. On the day you were created, they were prepared, an anointed guardian cherub placed you on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walk blameless in your ways from the day you were created. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence, O guardian cherub. And it goes on from there. However, if you look at the larger context, it says, I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You've come to a dreadful end. You shall be no more forever. And what I left out was the verse that starts all that. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king 
of Tyre. So Ezekiel 28, everybody says that's the origin of Satan. It's actually about the king of Tyre in symbolic terms. Now, you can say it has to do with Satan as well if you want to. But the bottom line is, sorry to tell you this, we really don't know as much about the origin of Satan as we wish we did. And the reason for that is the Bible is not a speculative book, but a practical book. The Bible's not going to tell you everything you want to know. may not tell you what happened to the dinosaurs. may not tell you how old the earth is. tells you what you need to know. Here's about the origin of Satan, what you need to know. All right? It's what you need to know. He is the angel of the bottomless pit. He's a created angel. When God created the angels, Satan is one of the angels he created, called the angel of the bottomless pit. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels at the end of time. The devil and his angels. In the, in the syntax, it's clear that the devil is among them. The devil and the other angels is a way to say that. He's a created angel. He's been sinning from the beginning, from the very beginning. He's a murderer from the beginning. That's what we really know. We know that he's a created angel. We know that from the very beginning, he's a murderer. From the very beginning, he's a sinner. Now, based on some things in Job 1 and 2 and Revelation 12, it, it's likely that there was a rebellion at the beginning of history and Satan was cast out of heaven and a third of the angels with him and those are the demons. That's maybe true. Connect the dots may be true, but we don't really know that as much as we think we do. That's what we know for sure about Satan, okay? Now, let's drive that into why it matters. Here's what we know about the activities of Satan. He's the ruler of this world, the Bible says. If you get surprised at what's going on in the world and the news, well, maybe you shouldn't be. Because this fallen world, this broken fallen world is his domain. The Bible says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, including the internet, including television, including movies, including sexual culture, lies in the power of the evil one. He is the prince of the power of the air, and he has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the line of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now, that relates to you and me on some levels, too. He's your adversary. This is written to Christians talked about this a couple weeks ago. He is a roaring lion. Lions roar when they attack. They don't roar when they're sneaking up on you. If they roar when they snuck up on you, they give away their attack, right? They roar when they're attacking. A roaring lion, your adversary. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. When you see stealing and killing and destroy, Satan's at work. And as you read Job in 1 and 2, he was behind the death of Job's family, his friends, the servants, the destruction of his possessions. Satan's alive and well. He is very, very real. He doesn't want you to think that. He either wants you to give him too much power and he can do what he wants, or he wants you to ignore him, which is kind of what our culture does. A couple of weeks ago, we put up some cartoons of Satan, the caricatures, the red tights, and the pitchfork. He likes that. He likes the idea that he's a caricature, a cartoon, somebody to just kind of make fun of, somebody to dismiss. The best way an enemy can defeat you is if you don't know you have an enemy. The best way to lose to cancer is to not admit you have cancer, right? We didn't know Al-Qaeda was after us on 9-10. They were hiding in plain sight. There's been a lot of retrospective since the 19 terrorists of 9-11, hiding in plain sight. They got in on visas. We didn't know what we knew on 9-12. Satan wants you to ignore his presence. He wants you to kind of 
Ignore who he is and what he is, all right? But he's very, very real, very much alive and well in this world. Here's his future, however. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I think I said a couple weeks ago, the next time Satan reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Okay? He's read the end of the book. He knows where this goes. So in the meantime, here's what matters. How do we defeat him? How do we defeat him? The first thing we do is understand the battle. Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You have an enemy. He hates you. You say, well, what did I ever do to him? Well, it's not that. He hates your father. He hates the Lord. He can't attack God, so he attacks God's kids. The best way to hurt me is to hurt my kids, especially my grandkids, my perfect grandchildren. Best way to hurt me, right? You understand that, right? Best way to hurt the Lord is to hurt his kids. You have an adversary. Now, you might be wondering what he can do to you as a Christian. He cannot possess you. Demon possession is a real thing. We'll talk about that down the way. We'll talk about demons and demon possession and all that coming up here in a few weeks. He can possess non-Christians. Can't possess Christians. If you ask Jesus to forgive your sins and be your Lord and Savior, you become the child of God. We'll talk about it again in a couple weeks, but the Bible says that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You belong to God. This remote can't belong to two people at the same time. Can't be in my hand and your hand at the same time. If you are possessed by God, you can't be possessed by Satan, but you can be oppressed by Satan. You can be oppressed. If he tempted Jesus, he can tempt you, right? If he caused a thorn in the flesh for Paul, he can cause a thorn in the flesh for you. You can be oppressed. And understand, he's real and he's bigger than you are. He's better at tempting than you are at resisting. He's been doing it a lot longer than you have. He is a created angel, we think. And he is so much more powerful than you are. You have an enemy. Isn't that good news? Aren't you glad you came? Well, here's the good news. Here's the good news. If you turn to God, submit yourselves to God, then you can resist the devil and he will, not might, not could, will flee from you. Do it in that order. Don't expect him to flee just because you resist. He's bigger than you are. Submit to God, resist, he flees. Every time you're tempted, submit to God. Every time you face a challenge, submit to God. Every time you have a problem, submit to God. Every time you have a decision, submit to God. Submit to God is a present tense. It's a present tense imperative. It's an ongoing command. Don't ever pick a battle on your own. Don't ever try to fat back yourself. Don't do what I used to do, building model cars as a kid. Used to love to build model cars. And I thought I got good enough at it that I didn't need the instructions, you know, until I wound up with a tire on the roof or something, you know, and had to go back and kind of figure out what I'd done wrong. Start with the instructions. Those are the instructions. Next time you're tempted, submit. Next time you have a problem, a challenge, a decision, an opportunity, submit. Submit it to God. Give it to God. Realize you've got an enemy bigger than you, but you've got a God bigger than him. Submit to God, and then you will resist, and he will flee. That's how it works. 
Now, part of submitting to God may be as simple as a prayer. Lord, help me. Lord, empower me. Lord, give me the strength I need. Lord, guide me. That's simple. Remember Peter on the water with Jesus, and Jesus is walking on the water, and Peter gets out of the boat and starts to walk on the water, and takes his eyes off Jesus and looks at the wind and the waves, and he begins to sink, and he cries out, Lord, save me. In the Greek, it's just two words, Lord, save. Shortest prayer in the Bible, and good enough. Lord, save. Sometimes that's all it takes, Lord, save. Sometimes when you submit, he's going to lead you to other people to help you. Sometimes they're going to be counselors. Sometimes there'll be medical professionals. Sometimes there's going to be a community and accountability. He will lead you into the way by which you can resist and the devil will flee if you will submit. I will say this as kind of a parenthesis. The Puritans used to talk, talk about besetting sins, and by that they meant repetitive sins. Sins that we tend to keep committing. Places where we have weakness. Again, Satan's better at tempting than we are at resisting. If there's a place in your life that's kind of a besetting sin, a place where you keep falling, a place where you keep losing the battle, where you keep not submitting and resisting, that's a place to up your game. That's a place to submit to God and ask God to show you how you can defeat this by taking the next step. Insanity is doing the same thing, expecting a different result, right? So say, Lord, is there someone I should talk to? Is there a counselor I should discuss this with? Is there somebody I need accountability from? What's my next step in this? I'm not trying to be naive. It's not so simple as every time Satan comes against you, you simply say, Lord, help, and it's done. Sometimes the Lord help involves more than him reaching out and pulling you out of the, out of the wave. Sometimes there's a process. But whatever it is, it starts with submitting. And if it's a besetting sin, especially submitting, Submit and know that there is nothing that comes against you that you can't defeat in the strength of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Should have put it up there. That uh, God is faithful. He will never let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation give you a way to escape that you can stand up against it. You never have to lose. You never have to lose. But if you don't submit, you'll never win. You may win partial victories. You may win a skirmish here or there, but you lose the war. As I said, you have an enemy bigger than you, but you have a God bigger than your enemy. Okay? Submit. And then last, you can serve with courageous and triumphant faith. Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we're killed all the day long. We're accounted sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, Paul said, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, including Satan, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we turn to him, we have the victory that Jesus offers. So as we were worshiping, and especially with that last song, a thought occurred to me that I think I'm supposed to share with you as we get ready to close. I would imagine if we took a survey and asked, do you think Satan is real? We'd all say yes. We know that he comes to steal and kill and destroy, and we know that he's real, and we know that he's alive. The thought occurred to me, we need Jesus to be as real in our lives as Satan is. We need Jesus to be more than a Sunday morning sermon topic. We need Jesus to be more than an occasional person we talk to when we have a problem. 
We need Jesus to be more than someone who saved our sins a long time ago and will take us to heaven someday. And in between, we're just kind of on our own here. We need Jesus to be as real as Satan is. 24-7. We need to experience Jesus. Not just talking about him. Not just believing in him. We need to know Jesus personally, intimately, present tense, real time. Like you and I know each other right now. He's that real. Even more real because by a spirit, he lives in you. In you, wherever you go, he goes. We need Jesus to be as real as Satan is real. One of the real subtle temptations of this culture that separates Sunday from Monday, spiritual from secular, religion, and real world is to put Jesus on a shelf when you leave chapel. Check the God box. Took out the trash, walked the dog, went to church. Check the God box. Now you're on your own. Now you're on your own. God is our refuge and strength. I preached on that the Sunday after 9-11. God is our refuge and strength. The refuge is no good if you don't get in it. Right? If Janet and I are walking around here and some horrible storm is coming this way and this chapel's here and the door's open but we don't get in the chapel, it can't help us. A refuge at the distance is no good. We need Jesus to be as real as Satan is real. And the good news is he is. The good news is he is. So close with a couple quotes and then we'll pray. Satan is powerful, but he is a defeated foe. For the Christian, listen to this, he is only as strong as the power we permit him to have in our lives. I thought that was profound. He is only as strong as the power we permit him to have in our lives. So don't permit him to have any power. Submit. James 4, 7. Submit, resist, win. And then this from the Puritan Thomas Watson. Soon the battle will be over. It will not be long now before the day will come when Satan will no longer trouble us. There will be no more domination, temptation, accusation, or confrontation. Our warfare will be over and our commander, Jesus Christ, will call us away from the battlefield to receive the victor's crown. Next time Satan reminds you of your past, remind him of his future and claim yours because that's yours. So let's pray. Where did you need this conversation? Where did you need this message today? Where is Satan real in your life? Maybe a besetting sin. Maybe a temptation. Maybe a discouragement. Maybe something physical or emotional or relational or financial. But where is Satan real in your life today? Name that place. And now ask Jesus to be real right there. Submit that to Jesus right now. Ask him for strength, help, wisdom, next step, whatever it is. Ask him for victory. And now thank him for the victory that is yours in him. Father God, I pray this will be a conversation long past today. I pray that all through the days and even the years to come, we will remember we have an enemy greater than us, but a Lord greater than him. And I pray that Jesus will therefore be more real in our lives than he's ever been. Because we need him. And now we know why. May that be true for me and us. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. Hey, an announcement quickly. I should have probably said this before I started. Uh, we're going to have to miss the next couple of weeks. Uh, we're, Chad and I are going to be on vacation in two weeks. Uh, we had scheduled it so that we could leave on Monday, miss that one Sunday, get back the next Friday, and still be here for chapel. So only going to miss the one Sunday was the plan. We're going to Vermont, actually. We'll just be working up there, but going to go up and see some leaves and such and try to get away for a little while. And then yesterday, a very, very dear friend of ours passed away. They sent out the message this morning. I don't know if you saw that. It's now public. I don't know if you know the name of Lloyd Powell, Lloyd and his wife, Michael. Lloyd uh, in the oil business in Dallas, and Lloyd and Michael so active in so many ways. Uh, Michael was chairman of Salvation Army and Crystal Charity and all sorts of things, and very active at Park City. He's very supportive of our ministry. So uh, Lloyd passed away after a battle with cancer yesterday. And the service will be next Saturday, and they've asked me to do the service. And so, and I can't do that and get out here in time to do chapel as well. So we'll have chapel next Sunday. Don't know who it'll be yet to speak, but we'll have chapel. And then I think Christy's doing two weeks, if I'm not mistaken, Christy Penn. And so, uh, but that just came up yesterday. And so we will miss you. I don't just mean that physically. I mean that relationally. I mean that emotionally. We will miss you the next two weeks. And then we'll be back after that. And so we will be praying for you over those weeks. If you think of the Powell the P-O-W-E-L-L, the Powell family, over this week. I know they would appreciate your prayer support in, in that way, uh, dear folks. So, so glad to be with you. God bless. Take care. Have a good week.